All right, if my numbering is correct, this is part 49 in our study of law and gospel. If my numbering is right, found out, yeah, I found out the other day that I had like two part 42s, two part 43s. So I think they're all fixed now, hopefully. So in theory, this is part 49 and we're on what thesis, if anyone remembers? No, we're nowhere close to finishing eight. We got pages to go to finish eight. Yeah, that's a, maybe it's one of the longest ones we've covered uh, so far. And anybody remember what thesis number eight says? It says, and in, in, well, I won't go to, because their numbering is off a little bit. Um, the, word of, the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins or the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. Simply put, what does this mean? Yeah, you, you've got the long gospel. Not only do we have to keep them distinct, we got to know who to give what to, right? Sometimes a person needs what? Law. And who needs law? The person who feels secure in their sins. They don't feel like that what they're doing is wrong. They feel like that they're okay. They need to hear God says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, because they need to realize that they don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And their only hope is not trying to do this or this or this, but to be driven to Christ who did all of that for them. All right. Does that make sense? And who needs, so that's who needs the law. Who needs the gospel? Those who know that they don't do this or do this and do this and they fell and they fell and they fell and they fell and they they feel the guilt of that, the shame of that, the humiliation of that, then they need the gospel. So there has to be that distinction in who we give it to. Now, I want to finish this thesis, but I've got emails that we have to work on, all right? The first one is a positive email, so we, we, we can make it through the first one really quick. They said this, this podcast series is life-changing. I'm working my way through all the episodes and I am blown away. I thought I pretty much knew everything there was to know about the law and gospel. I'm happy to say I couldn't have been more wrong. You have addressed all the troublesome parts about John MacArthur's teaching that have always bothered me, but I just didn't have the answers. I wish every Christian leader would listen to your teachings. It would change the messed up church we have today. These teachings are gold. I have said it many times before, but thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I haven't felt this excited since I got saved over 40 years ago. So that's always a positive one. I won't read the negative ones who tell me to die and burn, but I will. We'll skip those. Okay. But it's amazing how one series, some people are like, this is the most amazing thing. And the other one's like, you're an antinomian heretic who needs to burn in hell. And it's like, whoa, how, did, how does it go from the positive to the negative? All with the same teaching. But that's a whole subject in and of itself. But here's the one I want us to focus on because this one leads to some serious questions. All right, here we go. Everybody th- got their thinking caps on? Just got done with law and gospel. All right. Um, that, and it says that was really good. And uh, I can't remember which one that they, they just listened to, but they said it was really good. And then here's what, just listen to this sentence. I still battle with, did I repent? Do I really believe? Can you be deceived thinking you're saved and are 
not. Now, I won't read the rest of the email, but that right there brings up really the heart of this whole issue, right? Because law and gospel is this whole idea of trying to figure out, okay, how do we, we need to know the difference between law and gospel, but the distinction between law and gospel is very essential because it deals with what issue? Deals with salvation. And there's a lot of people out there who struggle with this. It's just amazing. You have some in the church who their struggle is, and I want you to really think about this, and it's kind of bizarre. Some people's struggle is for them to be able to determine who's saved and lost. They want to have the ability to say, well, I don't know if that person is saved. I don't know if that, that's their struggle. Their struggle is trying to figure out who is saved and who's not saved. Where there are other people who their struggle is, am I saved? How can people have such drastically different ways of thinking, right? Some people are like, well, well, wait a minute. If you teach this, I can't say if Emma's saved or not saved. Well, it, it's none of your business, re- really, right? Because we can't. I mean, all, let's make sure we just get this out of the way. Can we ever know ourselves if anyone is saved or not saved? We cannot because we can't see inside their heart. We can't see inside our mind. From, from the outside, you can think a certain way about a person. And guess what? You can be really wrong. Right? You can be really wrong because the external doesn't always tell the whole picture. Right? So we've got, we, and, it, and we make that we have wrong understandings of people on the basis of simple stuff. And we think we're going to be able to figure it out on the basis of something as significant as someone's eternal salvation. Now, what we can do is, depending on their external attitude, determine if they need to receive law or if they need to receive gospel. Right? And even there, we have to be aware that we could be wrong. So even there, we have to be very careful. But I just don't understand this pre, this, you know, I've got to be able to say who's saved or not saved. I don't know why you feel like you need to do that. I know, here's what I know. Every person needs to hear the law at some point, and every person needs to hear the gospel at some point. Yes? That's kind of the way it works. And so, but it raises this question for this individual. They're focused on themselves. Right there is already a positive thing, yes? But here's the question. If someone was to come to you and ask you, how do I know if I repent? If, how, how do I know if I have repented? And how do I know if I believe? What would you tell them? And why do you think this is even a problem or a struggle for many people? How do I know if I've repented? How do I know if I've believed? Right? Okay. 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 I I think the, and just stay with me here because I think this is important. I think this comes down to a battle of how we define repentance and how we define faith. Now, I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a couple of weeks ago, and I've been saying this over and over and over throughout this series, we've got to understand this issue. What is repentance? What is faith? Because there seems to be a big, major conflict in this in the minds of many Christians. Or let me state it this way. There seems to be a way of thinking in regards to repentance and faith 
that I think majority of Christians hold to, but I believe it's detrimental. And not everyone agrees on this, so we're going to have to work through this, okay? And this goes all the way back. I don't know how many times I've said this. Like, for our, for our generation, for us living now, we can trace back the issues really to the publication, I don't know how many times I have to say it, of one book. The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. I cannot express to you the significance of this book. That's why I've told everyone to read it and read it and read it and read it and read it because you've got this really, all the issues come to this. And I know people will say, no, it doesn't. It comes down to the Bible. I believe, look, there are times a book or a system of theology or an idea enters into the world of Christianity and it's just become so influential that we don't even see. Remember, ignorance of something influencing you does not change the fact of it's influencing you, right? There's plenty of you, I can name all kinds of church fathers, and you've never heard of them, and you've never read one word of them. But trust me, I guarantee you, you have been influenced by them. I could name all kinds of philosophers that you've never heard of or ever read, but trust me, you've been influenced by them, okay? So ignorance of something does not negate its influence upon you. But within Christianity, we always, as Christians, you need to be constantly aware of the ever-shifting tides and, and waves of theology because it's constantly happening and it enters into the church and nobody realizes where it's coming from. One, you know why nobody re- realizes where it comes from? Because in many cases, the pastors teach and they don't tell you what they're actually teaching because in many cases, what are they not teaching? They're not really teaching scripture. They're teaching the latest book that they've read or the latest sermon that they've heard. Now, I'm not opposed to them being influenced by it, but I am opposed to them not telling the people what they're doing because you need to realize where this is coming from, all right? So I, this book, and if, if you even look at the cover of the book, The gospel according to Jesus. And does anybody know what it says right underneath that? What is authentic faith? So what is the book setting out to do? To determine, MacArthur is going to tell you what real faith is and what real faith isn't. And he's going to determine what real faith is or real faith isn't on the basis of what? His definition of faith. Now, if his definition of faith is wrong, then guess what that leads to? A wrong conclusion about what authentic faith is. So what is repentance and what is faith? Let's go through the schools of thought quickly. Let's go with repentance, okay? Let's go with repentance, because I think this still fits in with law and gospel, and this goes to who to preach the gospel and law to, right? This person is what? Still concerned that they may not have truly repented or truly believe. So this person seems like that they don't necessarily need law. They need gospel, at least, in in my opinion. But first of all, before they need either of those, they need to understand what repentance is and law, what repentance is and what uh, faith is. All right, so here we go. What are the two schools of thought when it comes to repentance? 
Now, we've covered this multiple, 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 multiple times, all right? So everyone in this church should be an expert by this point, okay? All right, here we go. What are the two schools of thought when it comes to repentance? Go! Okay, well, that's not where I'm thinking, and that's not what we talked about, but that is true. There are two schools of thought when it comes to repentance, and how does repentance occur? Is repentance something you do, or is it something God grants me? Now, we would believe that repentance is something God grants us, right? That I cannot repent on my own. Why can I not repent on my own? Because I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, and dead people can't repent, right? Agreed? I mean, if we need to, we hop in the car real quick, drive down to the cemetery, and you can go try to get the people to repent. Okay, is it going to work? Okay, all right. So we're all on the same page there? Okay, all right. So, but there's, a, th- th- there's another two schools of thought that w- that's more the focus here. Okay, when it comes to repentance. This is not so much, th- these two schools of thought don't deal with how repentance occurs, but what repentance is. In other words, there's two schools of thought and how repentance is defined. There, does that clarify it a little bit? Okay. One school of thought defines repentance in regards to a change of action or direction. So your repentance is determined by a change of action or direction. Everybody got that? So then how, would you, how do you know if you repented, according to this view? You've got to look at your actions. Do, okay, I used to do this, I don't do this. I used to do this, I don't do this. I used to do this. I don't. And if I don't have enough change of action, then what becomes called into question? The genuineness of my repentance. And if I've not truly repented, right? If I've not truly repented, then what would that mean about my salvation? I'm not saved. All right? Let me, if you remember the, the, our series on the Sermon on the Mount, remember I spent, I don't know, 50 hours reviewing sermons from a church in Iowa? And remember how, what, how he tried to determine if your repentance was genuine or not? Does anybody remember how that worked? Well, I just kind of gave you the clue. It was a series on what? The Sermon on the Mount? Okay, so therefore, how does he define, how did he determine if repentance was genuine or not genuine? If you're following the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't follow the Sermon on the Mount, your repentance is not genuine. And if your repentance is not genuine, then you are not saved. Well, can you imagine defining repentance as obeying the Sermon on the Mount? Now, you would think everyone in that church would have been like, uh, we all need to get saved, but they were all just sitting there going, amen, amen, amen. Like it was all, and I'm like, how can you be so, how can you convince yourselves that you're following a sermon that says, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? The minute I, someone preaches a sermon that says, be perfect <laughs> as your heavenly father is perfect, and that determines whether your repentance is genuine, I think I'm just going to get up and leave that church, even if I think it's the truest church in the world. There's no point in coming back because I'm clearly not saved and I'm never going to be saved because I'm never going to be as perfect as God is perfect. So I don't, I'm just going to stay at home on a Sunday. Right? 
I don't know why, but nobody there seemed to be able to figure that out. I, it was, it was mind-blowing to me. But most Christians can't figure that out because they believe that. All right? Now, most of you probably have, have been brought up with an idea that repentance equals a change of behavior. But you probably never thought of the implications of that. The second school of thought says repentance is what? A change of thinking or a change of the mind. Now, we would like to say, now, typically what we try to do is we try to bring the two schools of thought together by saying repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. But we have to be very careful with that. Now, do you see the difference? If repentance is just a change of mind, then how do I know I've repented? Well, you know if your thinking has changed, right? So when it comes to salvation, what would be repentance as far as a change of mind? Well, I changed my mind about what sin is. I changed my mind about who Christ is. I changed my mind about Christ dying on the cross. I've changed my mind about believing he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father coming to you. In other words, I've changed my mind about, say, something like the Apostles' Creed. Now, I've changed my mind in what I believe. That is easy to determine if you've changed your mind, Right? Everybody should say yes. It's easy to determine that. That's easy to test. But what we want to do is like, well, if you change your mind, then your actions will change. But let's remember, repenting, if it's a change of mind, what what does changing your mind not change? Your nature. And what do our actions flow from? Our nature. And what nature do we still possess? So guess what's still going to be in your life and my life? No matter how much I change my mind about it, I'm still going to sin in some way, shape, or form. So if I look to action to determine if I change my mind, well, unless that change of mind leads to a change of nature, the old nature is still going to produce the old action to some, in some way, shape, or form. Somehow, Christians, just this all gets obliterated and it just becomes a mess. If you've changed your mind about God and about salvation and about heaven and about hell, and you now, you went from not, not believing it, accepting it, to now you accept it, you believe it, then that's repentance. And remember, we looked up the Greek word and what did we find over and over and over? Sarah, do you remember? It's a change of mind. Now, sometimes they would try to maybe add a little bit there, but at the very core, it was a change of mind. It was a change of mind at its very core, at its very essence. Now, MacArthur completely rejects that. Repentance is a change of action. It's a change of direction. You don't change. You didn't repent. You didn't repent. You're not saved. Right? Now, we've talked about that one, but there's the second one, and this is the one I want us to... So those are the two schools of thought on repentance. Everyone understand those two schools of thought? What are the two schools of thought on repentance? Number one, it's a change of action. It's a change of direction. Number two, change of mind. Which one is the easiest to confirm that you have actually repented? Change of mind would be the easiest. 
Yeah, change of action wouldn't be easy because you'd have to determine how much action is required. Is the action consistent? Right? In other words, if you change, if your direction, let's say you change your action on one sin on a Monday, but Tuesday you're committing the same sin. Did you really repent? Now, some would say yes or some would say no. But if you say no and if you didn't repent, then does that prove you're saved? You see how you would live in a a never-ending question of if your repentance was genuine. But if I change my mind, I mean, that's easy to test, right? I mean, you know how you're thinking. Does that make sense? See, it, it's hard for us. See, even, even that. So it's easy to revert right back to the old change of action concept because that's just the way we've all been taught. But we never thought of, well, here's, what, here's what happens with all and theology constantly within the church. We accept an idea, but what do we almost never do with the idea within the church? We don't take it to its logical conclusion. If you take it to its logical conclusion and the car goes off the cliff, it's probably a good idea that maybe you should reconsider your position. But we don't take it to its logical conclusion. You must take things to its logical conclusion. All right? Now, so those are the two views on repentance. Now, that comes to the second one. The two views on faith. What are the two views on faith? Anybody? Okay. Well, obviously we need to, I've got, we're, I'm going to make this a, a point of emphasis that we're going to repeat this now like every week for the next 200 years. Okay. All right. Because this is so important. All right. Well, okay, well, right, we're right back to that concept. And we believe that either you believe that's something you do or God grants you the faith. All right, so we, we all agree on that one. What we're dealing with, that's how faith occurs. So we do agree that there are two different views on how repentance occurs and how faith occurs. Either the reformed view or the non-reformed view. But we're focusing on the definition of faith. The definition of faith. There are two schools of thought on what faith is. Let me give you an example. They are looking at his book. See, which book is this? The Gospel According to Jesus, right here, this book. All right? They have lots of notes here. I'm not going to go through all of this, but they say this. MacArthur does not define faith until chapter 16. And when he does, this is according to an article, he gives, uh, he gives a, a definition that goes something like this. All right? Faith consists of a firm conviction, a personal surrender, and conduct inspired by such surrender. According to this definition, faith includes conduct, that is works. Faith is conviction, surrender, and conduct. So what is an authentic faith according to John MacArthur? It is a faith that does what? Has a conviction, has a surrender, and a conduct inspired by that surrender.
And whether we like it or not, the majority of the evangelical world have accepted that concept. And I bet you some of you, you may still even believe in that concept. That's school of thought number one, which says faith is what? Conviction, surrender, and conduct. That's, that's, does everybody understand that? Yeah, I just, I just quoted it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Has everybody got that? Now, now I'm going to see here if I can find a, well, I was going to give a, a different definition. Let's go through this. Let's look for another one. All right. Here's from another article. MacArthur believes that faith in Christ involves more than simple trust. And then he adds into that it, 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 it involves what? Commitment, obedience, the surrender. It involves those three things. So in a roundabout way, we have really two kind of basic ideas. Faith is either what? Simply a trust in God, a belief and trust in him, or it's belief, conviction, conduct, surrender, and those additional things. So the two schools of thought are this, that faith is conviction, surrender, and conduct, or faith is simply a trust in God and who he is and what he has done. Two very different definitions. I was going to go through all those articles, but for time's sake. Kind of stop myself in the middle of it. But. Now, this is the never-ending debate within Christianity. Because what do we always want the ability to do? Whether we like it or not, Christianity loves the ability to call into question someone's supposed repentance and to call into question someone's faith. And we want to call that, que- that faith into question so that we can say whether they are saved or not saved. Let me give you an example of what MacArthur does. All right? Here we go. I'll give you an example. According to John MacArthur... There are nine conditions that proves if your faith is genuine. You ready? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Have you truly turned from sin? Is your repentance a change of action, a change of conduct? If you haven't truly repented, then your faith is not genuine. Do you have genuine humility? Do you have genuine humility? Are you devoted to God's glory? That's all you focus on. You are devoted to God's glory, not your glory. Number five, are you, focus, are you working, are you operating in a system of continual prayer? All right? Do you continually pray? Next, do you have a selfless love? Not selfish, but a selfless love where you love other people above yourself. Are you separated from the world? And your thought, your word, your actions, your deeds. Are you, cl- are you clearly seeing spiritual growth? And number nine, are you obeying what God has commanded you? 
If you do all of those nine things, your faith is genuine. So faith becomes there about what? Works. Not about what? Trust. Now, if you look at that test and you're even a remotely honest with yourself, what, what are you going to come to the conclusion? Now, he doesn't even mention in this particular article, because typically it talks about a love for God's word, right? Typically that's thrown in. Remember, I think we looked at one test MacArthur gave that was 11 points, right? But usually it comes in, do you love this? Do you cherish it? Do you read it? Do you meditate? Do you memorize? Well, I can almost immediately show Christians do not spend near enough time with this. So I could already begin to call into question most people's salvation. And it's amazing people who get mad with me and argue about this. I'll say, well, okay, well, then let's go with your view. I'll just give you MacArthur's test. You failed. So get off my back. Go focus on yourself. Leave me alone. Why are you getting mad at me? You're going to hell. At least I know I'm going to heaven. So instead of calling me, getting mad at me, go fix yourself. But no, isn't it weird that the people who want to argue this don't worry about fixing themselves? They've got to fix me. Because I won't go along with their little reindeer games and say there's 37 things you have to do in order to be saved. Because I know this, Christ did those 37 things for me and it's in him is my only hope. Because if it's left to me, guess what I'm going to determine? That I failed. I mean, look, look, let's just be honest with these tests. If I can get back to them. Love for God. I mean, I mean, what, I mean, one more, what, I don't understand what we can do. Now you say, well, and, and guess what they always do? Well, I mean, it's not a perfect love. It's not a complete love. Well, look, either you love or you, I mean, like, how do you judge that? What, what is Jesus' standard for loving God? Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Anything less than that would prove what? You fell the test. So how can you say an imperfect love is sufficient to prove that you passed the test? That's just ridiculous. And then the last one was obedience. Well, what's, what is, what was God, what's God's definition of obedience? Perfect, exact, entire, perpetual. Any disobedience would be what? No obedience. And, uh, and all of our obedience at its very best is what? I mean, some of you probably has, as parents have said something along these lines. Remember we, we had a conversation about this and some of you parents confessed? Partial obedience is... No, typically... <laughs> Okay, that, that's, I don't know where Stephen came up. That is definitely, I've never heard a parent say partial obedience is better than none. I have never heard that ever spoken by a parent, okay? Clearly, Stephen was not raising any kids. I don't know where Stephen was because I have a feeling Sarah wasn't saying that. You were saying partial obedience is, as Stacy would say, full disobedience. If you partially obey what I told you, you disobeyed me. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the more kids you have by the end, you just give up. You're like, I don't even care about obedience. Do whatever you want. Burn the house down. I don't care. Okay, right. But, but we joke, but there's a seriousness to it. 
If we kind of demand that, then what do we expect God demand? And then we're going to tell people, hey, here's how you know. So for that email, guess what the John MacArthur view would tell that person who emailed me? Well, you want to know if you repented? How drastically did you change in your attitude, in your action, in your direction? Now, this person may say, well, I mean, I think I've changed. I've changed some. No, it's got to be perfect repentance. You turned, you walked away, and you didn't go back. Well, immediately I'm going to be like, I don't know if I repented. And then, is your faith genuine? What would they point them to? Well, your actions, your actions, your actions, your actions, your actions, your actions. And where would that lead the person? If they're honest with themselves, total, total depression and discouragement. Now, here, here's the million-dollar question. You ready? Now, we went through all that quick, and I know I'm going to get all the emails from the MacArthur fans going, if you would read MacArthur, you would understand. I've read the book 50,000 times, okay? I used to teach his view, okay? I know the view. Okay? I, I get tired when people are like, if you just would understand it, No, here's what I understand is you think you're obviously perfect, but the rest of us, we seem to realize that we're not, okay? And he's like, well, he's not demanding perfection. Well, if he's not demanding perfection, he's not demanding what God demands because God demands perfection, okay? So here we go. This is very important. If we go with this kind of view that repentance is a complete change of direction and action and that faith involves conviction it involves surrender, and it involves conduct. Whenever someone asked, do I really believe, am I really saved? What do we, if we go with that, that view, what do we point the people to for their assurance? Oh, come on, let's use the right word for this. Law, very good. We're giving them law to handle their doubt, their concern. Their worry. If someone has concern or doubt or worry about their salvation, are we to give them law or are we to give them gospel? Gospel. But if you go with this view, the only thing you can offer them is what? Law. And will law bring comfort? No. It will not. What would be a gospel way of comforting this person? I would say repentance is a change of mind and belief is trust. Do you trust in him? Are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? So what is your assurance of this per- for this person? What do I need to point them to for their assurance and salvation? And his finished work and his imputed righteousness. I need to, drive, I need to point them to something other than themselves. If I, if I point them to themselves, if there's any honesty, look, come on, just look at your life this week. Does your life this week give you assurance of salvation? Come on, thought, word, and deed. I don't know about you, okay, I, I'm probably, I'm done. Right? So what's my hope? Finish work of Christ, because here's what I know. All right, let, let's, let's go through this. Did Jesus love God? Perfectly, right? Did Jesus have genuine humility? 
perfectly. Did Jesus have devotion to God's glory? Perfectly, right? Did he have prayer? Perfect. Did he have a selfless love? Was he separated from the world? Quote, unquote. Did he have obedience? Yes, all of that was done perfectly. In Christ, all of that is what? Mine. So MacArthur's test, I pass it. Through Christ. So this is why, why I, I hate these conversations because when someone starts having this conversation with me and they're like, wait a minute, are you saying that you don't have to do this and this and this and this in order to be saved? I always say, I've done all of that. And then they get really confused because they're like, so then you agree with me? Yeah, I agree with you. There's a test to prove that I'm saved. Give me the test. Christ did it. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. Do you do it? And immediately when they say, do you do it? I'm like, I don't know how far away you, I don't know how far back you want to go to Rome, but you're so far Roman Catholic that it's not even funny. And then they get really upset. But I mean, I I don't play too many games with it because it's just a ridiculous thing. They can't even hear themselves. They're like, do you do these things? Well, do you not hear yourself? You've obliterated grace. You've obliterated the gospel. You're going, I mean, you're more Roman Catholic than the, the most, the strongest Roman Catholic I've ever known. But if you say that, they lose their mind. They're like, no, the problem is you're an antinomian. No, the problem is you think I'm an antinomian, but you wouldn't know an antinomian if they drove up and hit you three times with a baseball bat because you've never met one, heard one, or seen one. So you just are using a 10-cent theological term that you don't really understand. And what you're doing is obliterating the gospel. Because the minute you tell me that I have to look to what I do, what I do, what I do, what I do, and you put all the emphasis on me, that's no longer the gospel. Is that good news? That's not good news. That's horrible news. Because if I look to myself, it's bad news. The good news is that Christ did it for me. That's the difference. So do, do, we, do we understand this? These are two different... If you talk to anyone you know who goes to church and talk about repentance, I guarantee you they're going to define repentance as a change of action. And so when they see someone, they hear something, like they hear something about someone that did something, they're going to like, well, I, just, I don't know if they're really saved because, I mean, if they really repented, why would they be doing this? And, but you could look at them and go, well, if... If you really repented, how come you're not truly submissive to your husband? Or how come, you, how, you know, how come you're gossiping about what someone else is doing? They'll be committing a sin while talking about it, right? Like, why are you gossiping? Why are you slandering? Why are you talking about someone? It's so amazing that sometimes the people who will argue with me, this are people I know who fell the test. And I'm like, why are you arguing with me? I know you fell the test. You should be worried about yourself. Isn't it weird that we're so preoccupied with wanting to have the ability to say who and who is and isn't saved? So, just so that you know, what we are claiming is that repentance is a change of mind. You, now, someone may ask, well, do you believe it should change action? I believe it can, but guess what? It should inspire the change, but here's the thing. Here's where I, I, this is where people in in this discussion, I always 
miss it. And you know what I'm getting ready to say because I've already said it in this. The change of mind does not change what? The nature. So whatever change of mind leads to a change of action, what will I know about those actions? They're still going to be tainted and corrupted by sin because those actions arise from me and what is inside of me? Sin. So everything that arises from within me is corrupt. That's why I believe even as a believer, all my good works are still filthy rags compared to the righteous standard of God. Now, I believe God may accept those actions because of my faith and because of the finished work of Christ, but it doesn't mean my actions meet some standard or proves anything because my actions are always tainted. Does that make sense? For example, I believe... I think if we were halfway honest with ourselves, I believe 98% of the time when we say we love someone, what we're saying is that we love ourselves. And I know when I say that people lose their minds, but you love someone. Why do you love someone? Because of what you get from them, right? You, because you get security, you get this feeling, you get comfort, you get whatever. Well, then in reality, who do you love? Yourself. I mean, rarely do you like, hey, I love you. And they punch you in the face and you say, you're a piece of trash. Well, I love you. After a while, you probably stop loving them. Unless now some psychological thing is going on, right? But typically, that's going to create a major problem, right? Now, I'm not saying that you should sit there and take it. What I'm saying is it will demonstrate that when you don't receive certain things back, you'll see how strong your love is or isn't, right? Because you actually are loving whom? There's a selfishness even in our love. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a selfishness there. It's hard to be selfless in love, is it not? Here's an idea. If you want to show selfless in love, create humans, have them completely rebel against you, spit in your face and say, we don't want you, and then you send your son to die for them. Now that's selfless, because while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That's selfless. Selfish would be, well, if you do A, B, C, D, and E, maybe I'll help you out. Right? So even our love is, is, do you see how even our love is tainted? Yes? Even sometimes our good deeds, we cover it up. We cover it up in some way, shape, or form. We have to realize this. So I want to make sure we have this down. If we don't get anything else today, I don't care if we don't get back to the thesis. That's all right, because this is the most important. All right, two schools of thought when it comes to repentance. What are they? Everyone, let's go. Change of mind or a change of action, right? Those are the two schools of thought. The change of action sounds so good, right? Now, let me make it very clear. Can repentance involve a change of action? Yes. Right? Right. For When it comes to my salvation, I'm looking to my change of mind. Repentance can involve a change of action. I want to make sure it's, it's very clear. It can. If every time he comes to church, I slapped him across the head, right? Every, boom. Every time. Boom. That's every time. And then finally, he's like, man, would you stop hitting me in the head? And I'd be like... Okay, man, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll stop, right? Well, if I stop doing that, that is a change. I'm changing my mind about doing it, and I'm changing my action in doing it. 
So that would be repentance. I'm not saying repentance can't involve a change of action. It can. But it's a change of mind at its very core. Right? At its very core. So for salvation, what do I look to? Have I changed my mind? Do I hope it leads to a change of action? Yes. Naturally, there's gonna, you think there would be some, but I can't judge it on the basis of that, right? Because I'll give you an example. The Apostle Paul. You know where I'm going. The things I want to do. Paul, did you not repent? The things I don't want to do. Paul, didn't you repent? Would you say Paul repented? Then why is he having a problem with his actions? Right. Now, or he tries to water down the test saying, well, it's not about perfection. No, but the point is that then if it's not about perfection, then at some point your test becomes meaningless in the first place. But the point, so that I, Paul repented. And you know how I know he repented? How does that, those words, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. How does that demonstrate repentance? How did those words that Paul said, how do they demonstrate a repentance? He's changed his mind about what he wants to do and doesn't want to do, right? Before salvation, do you think before salvation I cared about the things I did as it related to God? I may worry about my actions getting caught, right? But my actions were determined by what I wanted. Now, once I become saved, I've changed my mind. And so now I know those actions are wrong. Okay, Lord, I don't want to do this. But I keep doing it. But I'm still demonstrating repentance because I've changed my mind about what I want to do and don't want to do. So in a roundabout way, if you say, man, I keep struggling with sin. Well, did you used to believe that was a sin? No. Then you have demonstrated repentance. But it may not lead to a change of action. Why will it may not lead to a change of action? Your change of mind does not change your nature. See, on almost all of these systems, it almost leads to a belief in the eradication of the old man. As long as I believe that that's how come I reject so much of this that I used to hold to, it's the, the once I realize, wait a minute, the old man is still there, then I realize some of these systems just logically fall apart. And I, do, I have never, never once ever taught in the eradication of the old man. Because the one thing I know is the old man is alive and well. All right? So, repentance is a change of mind. I want to make sure that we understand. It can involve a change of action. But it's very core how I know someone is repentant is because they've changed their mind. All right? Now, we sometimes, we want to question it, Right? We may look at, Robert, if you really change your mind, you would stop doing it. But the minute a Christian says that, what are they forgetting? That even though Robert changed his mind, the old nature is still there. We sometimes forget that, right? We forget that even as a parent. Well, if you were really sorry for hitting your brother, you would stop it. What does the kid still have? Sin nature. And guess what sin nature is like to do? Right? Okay. 
Yeah, and it was parenting. We're like, man, we theologically our parenting was so messed up. Okay, well, but it was true of all of us, right? Because I think I've said those things. If you really felt bad about it, you would stop doing it. So stop it. Right? That's very law based, right? That's me believing the child no longer has a sin nature. Isn't it amazing how we can parent in a way so contrary to our theology? Yep. I think that's a good example, correct? Now, I don't know how you parent necessarily with understanding the sinful nature is there, but at the same time, you've got to acknowledge it, right? Because guess what we know of our own selves? Sin nature is still there, so guess what we continue to do? Right? True? All right. Now, faith. Let's make sure we get this one right. Two different ways of thinking. What does faith involve? Does it involve a, a, a trust, a conviction, a surrender, and a conduct? Or does it involve simply a trust, a hope in? I mean, we could add some other words, but the main emphasis is just you're trusting in what Christ has done and who he is. Now, immediately some people may want to go, whoa, whoa, James, 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 James says faith without works is dead. And we understand that, but we have to understand dead in what way? Sometimes we understand that faith without works is dead as in a saving way. But is it possible James has a, remember we've talked about this, a completely different thing in mind. Faith without works is dead in what way? And justifying me externally to other people. Faith without works is dead as far as it's not going, it's dead in the sense it's not doing anything, right? Remember some of the illustrations he If he comes to me and says, man, I'm starving. I'm like, well, man, praise God. Go, you know, God will hopefully will take care of you. My faith is dead in what way? It didn't do anything for him. We want to read it that it means that we are not saved. And the problem is, if we read it that we're not saved, well, I'm sorry, nobody's saved. Unless then you should find, well, as long as I'm doing something. But what, what do we, Sarah and I have talked about this numerous times, that the passage early on, I think you said this and I said this, that Matthew 7 truly bothered you and truly bothered me, because in Matthew 7, what do we have? A group of individuals saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, 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 this? And he says, Depart from me, I never knew you. And you're like, well, what in the world? They seem to have faith, and they seem to do things, so why aren't they saved? And clearly we have to understand that something was wrong with their faith. That's the only way to determine it, because you couldn't say anything was wrong with their works. They were doing miracles. They were casting out demons. They got better works than I do. So clearly we would have to acknowledge that what was wrong? They didn't have faith. Either they, their faith rejected Christ as the Messiah or something along those lines. So does everybody see that? Everybody understand that difference? I want to make it very clear. Nobody's going to agree with you if you articulate this to anyone who doesn't go to this church because everyone thinks we're crazy. But it's really a difference between, to me, I mean, to me, the entire Protestant Reformation hinges on this. And one of the articles tries to go, go into great detail about this. I'll just read a, a little bit here about what one of them says, 
All right, so just so that we can end with this. All right, here we go. Uh, MacArthur uh, does not define faith until chapter 16, and when he does, he gives a non-biblical definition. He quotes W.E. Vine with approval. Faith consists of a firm conviction, a personal surrender, and conduct inspired by such surrender. According to this definition, faith includes conduct, that is works. Faith is conviction, surrender, and conduct. Whether MacArthur or Vine realize it or not, they have fallen back into the Romanist heresy. Romanist heresy is Roman Catholicism. And MacArthur has deceived many with his book, including at least two who ought to have known better, James Montgomery Boyce and J.I. Packer. And remember... Why I end up with a, why I ended up down this path is the very first Christian book I ever purchased was The Foundations of the Christian Faith by James Montgomery Boyce. Now I am so grateful. Uh, I have the book around here somewhere. I'm so grateful that that was the first book handed to me because I was a teenager. I'd only been saved for I don't know a couple of weeks, and I was like, okay, I love to read. I guess now I'm supposed to read Christian books. Where do I go to find Christian books? The Bible bookstore on Butternut Street in Abilene, Texas. So I drove there, walked in, and I'm looking around like, what do do I go? What is this stuff? Okay. All right. And then I'm so glad that the older gentleman, y'all know him. Yeah. Uh, He he saw me. He could have taken me over to, quote unquote, the youth section with all the garbage for youth, but he didn't. He took me to the theology section. And he handed me James Montgomery Boyce, very large book. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen, right? So I went home and read the whole thing. Well, that immediately started me down the path of theological thinking, right? But it also took me down the path of kind of a lordship view of understanding because James Montgomery Boyce, but he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I read that book after I read the, uh, I think it was the second or third book I bought which started me down this path. And it wasn't long that guess who else I discovered? The gospel according to Jesus. It wasn't very long until I discovered that. And then that was when things really started, I started down this path. Um, and then it says, uh, by contrast to MacArthur's view, we read these words in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, that act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, faith alone is the instrument of justification. In other words, if you contrast the Westminster Confession of Faith or our own Confession of Faith, the London Baptist, it's complete in stark contrast to MacArthur. MacArthur is looking for obedience. Faith doesn't look to our obedience. Faith points us to the obedience of whom? And we trust in it. That's the difference. Does that make sense? The biblical teaching in the Protestant position is that neither pre nor post-regeneration works 
are either material, well, basically will help us out or necessary for justification. All right, somebody read that again. The biblical teaching, and as soon as I say this, some people are going to say you're an antinomian, but let me read it again. The biblical teaching and the Protestant position is that neither pre- nor post-regeneration works are necessary for justification. It is only imputation of Christ's righteousness by faith that makes a sinner acceptable to God. All right? The biblical teaching in the Protestant position is that neither pre- nor post-regeneration works are either meritorious or necessary for justification. Well, you can just put necessary. It is the only imputation of Christ's righteousness by faith that makes a sinner acceptable to God. You know how many people would absolutely lose their mind if we, they heard that? Pretty much every Christian friend you know. But yet they would say what? We're not saved by works. <laughs> and then turn around and say, but if you don't have the works then you were never saved. Meaning, I have to have the works in order to be saved. They think by just switching that, by just stating it differently, you don't do the works to get saved, but you got to do the works to prove you're saved somehow means that I'm not saved by works. But the minute you say, I have to do the works to prove that I'm saved, what are you saying? I'm saved by works. There's no way around it. And the minute you say that, you've destroyed what? The gospel, because now, and what are you pointing people to for salvation? Law. So for this person who emailed, how do you know you've repented? Have you changed your mind? How do you know you've believed? Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in his finished work? Now, they admit in the email that part of their problems is they, they have been taught that they have to look to their actions. And guess what they see constantly when they look at their actions? Failure. And so guess what they're doing? Doubting. And you know what? That makes me very sad that that's happened. And it makes me sad because I've taught people that very thing. Because, I, because if in the MacArthur School of Thought, I'm accomplishing something if I'm making people doubt their salvation. But I'm destroying the distinction between law and gospel. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Controversial, yes. Difficult, willing to admit. Important, I cannot overstate the importance of this, Lord. And I hope that we will understand how important this is and forgive us for all the ways we've handled this incorrectly and forgive us if we're handling it in an incorrect way currently. Lord, we will keep studying and doing our very best to find the correct way to understand this. And I just ask for your grace and mercy for every mistake and every error that we fall into as we continue to try to figure out the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...